Good morning. Welcome to Laurel Heights. <clears throat> I'm going to invite you to have your Bible ready. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This year, in sermons once or twice a month, I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians. And as you read and study 1 Corinthians, you immediately pick up a sense of urgency. There were problems. There were questions that needed immediate attention. It was a troubled church. And Paul was inspired by God to deliver through this epistle heaven's solutions to their problems. Attitudes needed to be corrected. Remedial instruction needed to be heard and applied to bring people back to healthy submission to the authority of Christ. In chapter 8, Paul takes up another issue, another question that troubled the Christians in Corinth. Would you listen, please? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." Now, this is not an issue 
that we immediately identify with. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, the friction and conflict between people, we know what that looks like. The upheaval, cultural upheaval in Corinth over sexual lust and general promiscuity, we see that in our time. But then we arrive in chapter 8, and we may not see anything much like this in our modern time. It is a specific issue that would be very rare today. But don't skip the chapter because of that. There are principles of attitude and behavior here for Christians of all ages to take to heart. So let me explain as best I can what this was about in Corinth in the time of Paul historically. Local churches in places like Rome and Athens and Corinth were mixed. And I mean by that Jews and Gentiles together. People obeyed the gospel and became members of a local group And in many cases, these people had never been with anyone much outside their ethnic background. There had been widespread separation between Jews and Gentiles. That was the racial divide of the first century. But in Christ, people are baptized into Christ. There is the great potential of unity that can be maintained and cherished. Another part of this is Corinth had a very heavy presence of pagan, godless idolatry. Gentiles who obeyed the gospel often came out of systematic pagan culture. In that pagan culture, there were altars and temples, belief in many different gods, and animals were used in pagan ceremonies and rituals. Here's sort of how that worked. Animals would be raised by stock providers, purchased, and a portion used in pagan rituals. And then the pagan priest would wholesale out the rest of the meat in the consumer marketplace for consumers. Now, I said this was rare. We don't have anything much like that. In our modern culture, there are people who observe religious menus, but this chain of movement from the field to the pagan temple, then to the marketplace, really has no parallel that most of us are familiar with in our culture. So, here's the history behind this. Think of the animal from the farm to the pagan temple, and then the rest of the meat sold in the marketplace for anyone to consume. You can imagine already what the question was between Jews and Gentiles mixed together in the church at Corinth. Can we eat that meat? Well, some said, yes, we can eat that meat. It's just meat. There's nothing wrong with the meat itself. And God has actually said back to the Apostle Peter before he went to the house of Cornelius, that we can eat meat, Acts 10, 13. Some were very clear about that. Others said, no, 
If it was used in a pagan temple, it will contaminate us spiritually if we swallow it. It's almost like meat being possessed. And still others said, we don't know what to do. So there were some who said, of course we can eat the meat. Others who said, no, we we just cannot conscientiously partake of that meat. And some who said, we don't know. You see the problem. I believe that's what Paul is addressing here in chapter 8. And it comes up again over in chapter 10. So we need to be familiar with it to study 1 Corinthians. Now, one human problem that often occurs with matters like this is there are people who quickly jump right in the middle of the debate and quickly claim that they know the answer. Paul addresses that impulse in the first part of chapter 8. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Often, when someone thinks they have the answer, they immediately and boldly assert their answer and refuse to hear anyone else. They dogmatically assert what they know and what they believe without any consideration or patience for anybody's conscience in the matter. Paul is responding to that attitude. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In verse 2, Paul continues to address the dogmatic, impulsive, intolerant responder. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He may know the knowledge and the facts, but he may not have the right attitude in his assertion. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul is saying... Whatever you do with this difficult issue, if love is absent, you don't have it right, even though your answer may be ultimately correct. Then beginning in verse 4, Paul, with love and calm and objective sequence, gives his answer through five assertions. We're going to look at these briefly. Number one, Paul says, idols have no real existence. The statue may be there, but there is no God represented there because there's only one God. If an idol and the God it represents have no actual existence, it cannot put spiritual corruption in a piece of meat to be passed on by the consumer. This is exactly what the prophets said in the Old Testament. They said when people talk about many gods, there are not many gods. Those many gods exist only in the imagination of the minds of men. In Isaiah 44, 9 to 17, it's clear right on the page that idols are manufactured from the minds and the hands of men. And not only does the idol have no existence, the god they say the idol represents has no existence. Paul says an idol has no real existence. Now, something that does not exist cannot contaminate your dinner. Don't worry that the meat you're eating was contaminated by a pagan god because there are no pagan gods. They don't exist. That's part of Paul's answer. 
And he follows up, there's only one God. An idol has no real existence, but God does, and there is one God. I'm reading verses 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Paul is reporting what people claim, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I hear Paul saying very clearly, before we get all worked up about idols and imaginary gods and meat that pagans offer in the marketplace, let's be straight about this. Idols have no existence, nor the gods men claim they represent. God does. God made animals, and from Acts 10 we understand we can consume that meat. Many of us will after we dismiss. Number three, there are some people who are not fully developed in their conscience on this matter. They've come out of pagan idolatry. They're not fully convinced. However, not all possess this knowledge, verse 7. Something may be very clear to me. With my experience and knowledge, I may have certainty about something as being all right, but not everybody may possess that level of knowledge. I want you to think about people who came out of pagan idolatry. After a long experience in darkness, now they see the light through the gospel. They know now there is one God, and through Christ they have become children of God. And with this new fresh outlook, they begin to realize how horrible their idolatry was back before they were baptized. And they don't want to have anything to do with idolatry, even if their reaction seems to be exaggerated and unreasonable to some. They don't even want to eat meat that's been used in the temple. Paul's message is, let them alone in their conscience. You don't have to eat meat to go to heaven. The NIV does this well. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. The point Paul makes is we should not cram our knowledge down their throat or our dinner down their throat. If they want to abstain from that meat... It is their liberty. Number four. Food has no direct automatic bearing on our relationship with God. Verse eight. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, be careful here. This doesn't mean that gluttony is okay or that you can intoxicate yourself with a batch of marijuana brownies. Certainly food is subject to misuse as determined by other passages. All good things can be misused. But the mere physical passage 
of food into your body and your stomach doesn't bring you closer to God or take you away from Him. The very thing Jesus argued in Mark 7, 14-23. Food in and of itself is morally neutral and cannot contain spiritual or moral contamination that would transfer to your soul. Then number five, Paul says we must never allow our liberty to become a stumbling block to others. And this is where he says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Here's where this gets really practical for us, though there's not pagan temples on every corner in McAllen. There are things I may consider I have a right to do. But I must not try to get others to do, especially if they're not comfortable with that activity. This is very similar to what is argued over in Romans 14. And this is not completely foreign to our time. I know a few people who are, by choice of conscience, vegetarians. Not just as a health choice. They're very serious about it. Now, I don't agree with them. But I'm not going to take them to Whataburger and try to get a hamburger in them. See, you don't have to eat cheeseburgers to go to heaven. If you decide in your knowledge that you can eat meat, fine. I believe you're correct about that. But leave the vegetarians alone. There are things we may have a right to do, but should never try to get other people to do. There is no spiritual gain in trying to get somebody else to do what I do when that activity is not required essential by God. God has given us liberty in various matters, having to do with opinion and preference. But Paul says, be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Romans 14.20 gets it very clearly stated. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. I tell you, one of the great points of conflict and crisis happens when people take something that is non-essential and go to battle to get everybody else submitted to that opinion. Let me say that again. One of the great points of conflict and crisis happens when people take something that is non-essential, that God doesn't require, and go to battle and get everybody else submitted to their opinion. Being a Christian is never about getting other people to be like us. It is about all of us being like Christ. So the questions the Corinthians raised about meat sacrificed to idols, those questions were to be approached on the basis of knowledge with love that respected the rights of individuals to make their choices about what they ate, while being careful not to give offense 
not to lead anyone to violate their conscience or leave a wrong impression. Now, how do we take these principles and recommended attitudes out of the building into life? I have three brief points. One, let's try to be smart without being puffed up. To study and learn and know and know the fine points is good and right. But to put ourselves above others, to boast about ourselves in asserting our knowledge over the weak, Paul speaks to that. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We need to be as smart as we're able to be with Scripture without being puffed up. Two, we need to give people room to grow. There may be practices or menus or behaviors we believe do not violate God's law, but others have not reached that point. They're not doing wrong. They're just abstaining from something we believe would be okay. Rather than insist that they violate their conscience, give them room to grow. And number three, if something is not essential to salvation, the example here is, You can go your whole life and not eat meat. If something is not essential to salvation, even if we think it is permitted, let's not impose our choices on others. God never told us anything just so we could know it and tell it and boast about it. God gives us knowledge so that we can live by it and use it with love to be servants of Him and servants of each other. I hope you'll come back at 5 p.m. That's when I'm going to take up chapter 9, which further develops the very things introduced in chapter 8. We have rights and liberties, but as we embrace those rights and liberties, we must be mature and responsible and disciplined. And we'll get into that in the next chapter when we come back at 5 p.m. Thank you so much for listening to this rather complicated issue. I hope these lessons we will take with us out of the building, into heart, and into life. Let's be standing as we sing.